It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening, I'm Clarence Boone, and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning radio broadcast in our 16th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. Good evening, I'm William Hosea. A recent online community response petition was posted which solicited input regarding the Monroe County Community School Corporation's reentry plan. It cited the following. In response to the current MCCSC reentry plan, we recognize the weight of your responsibility and thank you for the time and effort you have put into making these difficult decisions that will affect the health, safety, and prosperity of our community. It is their hope that the petition and subsequent communications will serve as a guide for action and, and an ongoing assessment regarding school operations in Monroe County. Their greatest concern is regarding equity, especially regarding decisions being made pertaining to all children and staff, not just those who have the economic privilege to choose a home-based learning program or work online. Their stated priority is that each community member's health be protected and that each person can make the safest decision for themselves and their family. In addition to this petition, the Monroe County Community Schools Corporation has begun the process of replacing Superintendent Judy DeMuth following her upcoming retirement. Around 20 people attended a meeting on the topic held this past Tuesday. The group hopes to compile a list of 12 to 15 superintendent candidates before moving forward in the search. Here to help us with our discussion on the MCCSC is April Hennessy, who is running for a seat on the Monroe County Community School Corporation Board. She moved to Bloomington in 2007 to attain graduate school at IU. Currently, she works as a digital learning specialist for a global corporation that brings in innovative learning strategies to organizations around the world. She is also the parent of children currently within the MCCSC school system and is a former MCCSC English teacher at Bloomington High School North. April enjoys spending time with her family, reading voraciously, listening to podcasts, and volunteering at the People's Market to provide access to Whole Foods and food security to families across Bloomington. With that, April, welcome to Bring It On. Thank you so much for having me. I think we need to uh, clarify that you're not here to represent MCCSC. You just came to talk with us about it. Absolutely. I have no official capacity at MCCSC right now. Um, obviously, I hope to be elected to the school board in November, but I'm just here to have a chat with you all, and I'm, I'm really glad to be here. Okay, and, and speaking of school board, um, you've worked within MCCSC, and you also have children who attend school. Um, would you mind telling us what inspired you to run for a seat on the school board? Um, for example, is there something you want to change specifically, or do you just want your voice to be heard and be a part of the decision-making process? 
Yeah, absolutely. There are things that I would like to see us really begin to work to change in this district. And one of those things I've said over and over in my platform is um, both the economic disparity and the racial disparity that we see in our district that affects so many families. And I don't yet think we have policies or practices that speak to those things. And interesting, interestingly enough, I left the district in um, 2018. And many of the things that I wrote in my resignation letter still hold true absolutely today. Um, and I said, you know, instead of the kinds of things that we were doing, we were in need of deep and thorough overhaul of our systems that would educate rather than alienate, that would connect people rather than segregate, and that we needed to do more than just standardize the learning of all students and all teachers. Um, we understand that the disparity across our district is enormous. I mean, you can be at Rogers Benford, a school that is incredibly um, sort of prosperous in many ways and drive 11 minutes across the, the town to Fairview where we find that we are lacking resources um, often. So the disparity is huge. And I think between um, that and sort of the school to prison pipeline that is very much at work in our system, and that's the use of these exclusionary disciplinary policies like in-school suspension, out-of-school suspension, expulsion, things like that, they are disproportionately affecting our black and brown students, um, LGBTQ students, and students who have accommodations or have special needs. Um, and that's been true in our district for a very, very long time. The data has been there and it's not really yet begun to shift. So we've got a lot of work to do. You bring up a couple of good points, uh, like the school to prison pipeline. Is that an example of uh, some of the racial disparities that you wanna address and are there others? Absolutely. I think that's one of the big ones for me because we know that black and brown students in our district are dis disproportionately affected by this. Um, and, you know, I saw it in my own classrooms. I, I had many students of color who I saw getting dinged for minor infractions that many of my white students weren't getting dinged for, like being tardy to class. Um, I had a student who basically was suspended for having too many tardies, and it just was sort of infuriating to me that we had policies that, you know, rather than bringing kids into community and understanding what were those things that were driving them to be late or whatever it might be, we're just sort of, you know, giving them the boot in these ways. Um, and so in many instances, I just refused to participate in that system. Um, I kept the kids in my class, even if they were disruptive, and I tried to work with them. Um, and this isn't just black and brown students, but this extended across the board, right? If they were disruptive, I tried to talk to them in the hallway and make relationships with them. But things that just would show them that I was invested in their well-being, um, whether or not they came to school in a good mood or a bad mood or whatever it might be, I also think that I don't want to sort of pigeonhole the black and brown community in, in this sort of um, in this way. We know that they're disproportionately affected, but I also think um, what happens often in this district too is that people say, oh, well, you know, we need to do these things for equity or we need to do these things because of, of these reasons. And we're sort of already pigeonholing a population of individuals. And we know that there are intersectional politics um, at work, that there are low income black and brown families, but we have other families that are black and brown families that sit in other tax brackets as well. And those families sometimes still don't get their voices heard in inappropriate ways. Um, and so I also think, you know, one of my other things is high ability testing for all kids. Um, I had many kids in my classroom um, even black and brown students, BIPOC students who 
they really needed to be in some upper level, higher tracked classes, but they kind of just refused. And they said, you know, like, I don't see people who look like me in those classes. So I don't really want to be there. I got that. I understood that there wasn't representation at the teacher level. They didn't see their students, peers represented there. So, I mean, it, it's at all ends of the spectrum. Um, we've got these kinds of issues at play. You know, it was um, noted about, oh, 15 or maybe 20 years ago, and I've been here for some time in Monroe County, that there had been a recurring concern with parents, especially children of color, that their kids seemed to be either profiled or um, they either tended to be sort of set up for failure in the Monroe County School Corporation, and there were some concerns that if a child struggled in the second grade, then the third grade teacher was waiting for them with this preconceived idea of, of how they were going to perform, or if uh, there was a, maybe a, a situation that occurs that the principal's involved, then you can get typecast. Uh, and so that was a concern. Have you, while you were at MCCSE, did you see progress towards reversing that trend at all? It's an interesting question. Um, you know, I think that we've begun to make some strides. I served on diversity and equity committees at both the building level at North and at the district level. Um, so I know that the district has begun to try to do some things they've put, you know, they hired Rafi, they hired Julius Hanks. We have these diversity coordinators who've been um, in the district now. I think in many ways though, that, that work is not yet fully embedded in everything that we do. Right, we need to see anti-racist curricula and policies. We need to see um, that reflected in our hiring action of teachers of color. We need to see that firmly embedded at every level of our school district. And it's still sort of like tacked on right now. It sits on the side of things. It's not integrated yet. Um, you know, our district is still 94.8% white in terms of teachers. So, and our, our district population in terms of students is a little over 25%. Um, diverse. So we don't yet have accurate representation, not on our school board, not at the teacher level. Um, and so I think, yeah, we've, we've got a long way to go. I think we're making some strides toward the, towards those things, but we're not there yet. I have a follow-up to that. Uh, I'm reading from a press release dated August 15th, and that was uh, released by the Monroe County School Corporation. It reads, uh, the Monroe County Community School District recently earned its place in the top 20 ranking for 2020 best schools in America um, um, rankings and grades. And this was by Nish. And this is, I guess, a data aggregation website which uses the most up to date data available from dozens of public uh, data sources, including the Department of Education, US Census, and FBI. And MCCSC claimed its spot at number 17 with an overall grade of A. Um, it's interesting. Based on what you have said, they still have a lot of work to do. They do. Um, yeah, I find these grades to be sometimes problematic because they, they don't always get to the stuff that is happening um, underneath the surface, right? So that's a lot of that is just data that's pulled from the top. Um, and I'm not sure what makes up that particular grade. I haven't looked at that report, so I don't know what um, they're sort of basing that grade on. But no, I absolutely do think we have a ton of work to do. And I think our district is still incredibly um, segregated. And so, yeah, I think we, we're just <laughs> on our well, way, but not there. 
Well, a current, a current dilemma uh, facing school corporations all over America, and it's being exasperated by our uh, Secretary of Education, uh, is just how, how we handle this COVID pandemic. And no one's an answer person here. We realize that. If so, you would not be sitting with us, April. You'd be up in Washington making things better than what they are right now. Uh, but nevertheless, from what you witnessed as far as response to such, such issues, uh, first of all, were you there at MCCSE when the pandemic broke? If not, this might be, okay, you weren't, okay. But from your vantage point, from what you can see, do you feel they're being responsive? Uh, do you think that there was maybe, they were a little bit too hasty in getting kids back in, into uh, classes physically? Or what are, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think it will be no surprise to most people who've heard me at this point that I do think that we've moved a little too quickly um, through these phases. And, you know, I absolutely recognize that there is a great need in our community, um, especially because of, as I've said, we have a great deal of economic disparity. We have a great deal of need for kids to be in classrooms for a variety of reasons. Um, and I think there's been some criticism because I've said, you know, some kids need to be in the building and others maybe not so much in the same way. And I'm not suggesting that it's my decision to decide who needs to be there and who doesn't. But I know that, for instance, some of us have privilege and the access and the ability and kids who can learn at home. And so we can keep our kids at home. And that does help make space in buildings for people who really do direly need to be in the classroom. Um, kids who need accommodations, kids who might be suffering from, you know, sort of mental health issues due to the pandemic or a variety of other things. Kids who need wraparound services like food services. I mean, there are a number of kids in our district who do need to be in classrooms. I would not deny that. I think that we were too hasty in moving kids into the classrooms, however, though. I think we didn't have solid plans yet. The metrics weren't fully defined and fleshed out in ways that, um, I thought were fully yet accountable and responsible. And I also think I kept hearing the sort of excuse of, it's not, maybe not excuse, but that, that same phrasing about equity being used over and over and over. And it was a little troublesome to me because um, I knew that the buildings that would be fullest were Title I schools in large part. And when we look at the data, that's largely true. There are some that are exceptions. I think Templeton was like a 50-50 split. Um, but I just worried that if we crammed certain buildings full of students who were also perhaps students most at risk in terms of like COVID, um, we weren't yet doing a service to our students. And I think a couple of weeks ago, the CDC put out some numbers and um, you know, deaths in children are not high at this point, but it still is kind of um, interesting to me. You know, they said just 17 of those recorded fatalities were in white children, compared with 35 deaths of black children and 54 Hispanic deaths. You know, that's, to me, the, the difference there is stark. And so if we really are talking about equity and what is equitable, um, we have to account for data like that too. I just... I think we needed to take a little more time. Teachers did not have enough time to prepare for a variety of scenarios. And I think we're doing it again. You know, on Monday, we will be moving to phase green. This will be essentially the third first day of school this semester in which everyone and everything kind of has to shift in order to, in order to accommodate a new phase. It's 
not best practice in terms of continuity of care. It's not best practice for lots of reasons. And I think as we move into the convergence of the flu season and pandemic at the same time, that calls for caution um, rather than a full speed ahead kind of approach. Uh, so just to be clear, as of this broadcast date, uh, they have now moved into the next phase of, um, uh, of operations and the MCCSC. You know, uh, also just as a uh, point of order to our listeners, we had invited a gentleman to come on who was so disgruntled by some of the policies being enacted in the school corporation that he resigned. And we had invited him to come on to share his discontent. Uh, however, he was not able to, to reach up uh, to join us as of this recording. And, but we'll keep reaching out just to hear uh, why he was so discontent, why he was so frustrated with this, uh, the policies that were enacted in, this, in the MCCSC. And also to our listeners who watched the vice presidential debate last week, uh, you know that uh, that point did come up, but there was sort of an inadequate response from the current sitting vice president of the United States. William, I defer to you. Um, April, talk about the uh, school board's decision to reopen. So that was on August the 25th, if I'm correct. The vote was six to one in favor. Now, if we agree with that decision or not, to be fair, MCCSC did offer parents some options to consider. The online option is still a choice. Some schools have a hybrid model, which includes attending classes in person and online. And to some degree, they try to address child care concerns. So with all that we're dealing with and what we know about COVID today, um, what, what are your thoughts on the accommodations that they tried to make or the, the hybrid model, how, how they tried to adjust and accommodate? I think it's interesting because way back, I, I guess probably June, July, I can't remember when it was, but when we first kind of re received news that there would be like an online academy, that's what they were calling it at first, there would be an online academy and there were some um, suggestions or um, some people said that they would be hiring new teachers in order to staff the online academy. Um, I wasn't really sure how that would happen, just knowing budgetary constraints and things like that. So I assumed maybe they would allocate some teachers for online, allocate some for in-person, something like that. Um, it quickly became apparent that that was not going to be the case and that many teachers across buildings would be asked to do both. Sometimes at the same time, often you know across different periods, um, some schools at the elementary level do have dedicated online teachers. Some kids are in classrooms that are mixed, that have online and hybrid or online and in-person all at once. I think the burden on teachers is enormous right now. It's, it's really, really intense. Um, we ask increasingly a lot of teachers and this is no exception. And I think one of the issues that we've been having in terms of, um, again, a kind of experience that is equitable is that the online experience hasn't really been like an online academy um, in many ways and this is not the fault of teachers i would never ever suggest that but in many ways um, the online programs have been at some places and in some schools a, a kind of afterthought almost right so my daughter was without a teacher in one of her classes for weeks she received an email message just the other day that said for the first time since the teacher left the classroom at the beginning of, of this back to hybrid and in-person stuff, um, 
hi, I'm your sub for this class, and please make sure you get all your work turned in so that I basically don't have to send your name to the principal. I mean, that's the first time she'd ever heard anything from anyone in this class. Um, and then my son's teacher was the gentleman that you referred to earlier, Clarence, who retired because of COVID. Um, and then just this week, we got another email saying that another teacher had retired because of the sort of COVID response and in anticipation of going green. So that's now three teachers across my two kids. And, you know, at the last board meeting, I said that um, it's alarming to me. We pulled the data from 2011. So we looked at every September from 2011. And what we found was that both the teachers and the support staff numbers of individuals who have left the district are more than double what they are in any other year since 2011. So whatever precautions and accommodations and things the district is making, I think one of the things that we haven't yet looked closely enough at is the sort of feelings and opinions and perspectives of the support staff and the staff and the teachers and administrators um, in our district. These numbers are telling us that people are uncomfortable, that they are worried and distressed and um, we just, I don't think we've listened hard enough to that yet. You mentioned that, you mentioned some metrics earlier, and we know that the school board made their decision based on some metrics uh, that were uh, actually conducted by someone, someone that they hired. But I wanted to talk about just a couple of those, those metrics. Um, one of them is, the percent positivity, and that's based on a seven-day rolling average, positive cases per day based on a, also on a seven-day rolling average, um, test turnaround average, number of days from test to notification for MCCSC students and employees. And I have to go back again to the vote being six to one. Um, first, are you familiar with those metrics? And, and do you think that those were strong enough um, I, I guess to 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 justify a six to one vote in favor, and there were I think if I'm not mistaken there were five metrics total that they used. Right, and actually I think so. There were two separate votes that night. One was on the metrics themselves, uh -huh. and one was on the plan to reopen. And so on the plan to reopen, um, I think we had that higher vote, and that was provided. The metrics were. Um, you know, clear for that. But the actual metrics themselves, I think the vote that happened prior to that, um, that was, I think we had two individuals who sort of um, were nay and the other ones who were yay on that. So there were a couple of people who were not in favor of the metrics themselves necessarily, but then the vote to open when it was safe was the thing that was approved. Um, you know, <laughs> We have a lot of experts in this community. We have a lot of experts um, at IU. We have people who have been posting who understand the data. Um, and what we keep hearing is that our, our population here, our community is unique, and that it's really hard to kind of pull apart the numbers because of IU, 
right? So I use numbers are somewhat incorporated in the, dash, in the dashboard um, and they weren't always, but at some point they became incorporated. So it was a really tough thing to pull apart to understand what was community spread, what was IU spread, how are those things related? It's not as simple as we've got one number, let's use that thing and you know make a decision. Um, I also think that we have to look at the larger metrics of the state itself and how the state is trending because we're not in a bubble. And if our state metrics continue to increase, if we continue to see increased numbers of positivity or deaths, we need to be really reconsidering what that means for our community and how we will eventually be affected by that. Um, and I also just think, you know, we don't yet have a vaccine. We don't yet... Um, have clear answers about when this will be ending. We are about to hit flu season. I think an abundance of caution is just necessary in some ways. Well, well not to get flippant, we actually do have a vaccine now. Uh, our, our president <laughs> did come out and said that he is healed. <laughs> and this is where we hear, hear the angelic, oh, you know, uh -huh. and, uh, and he'll make these uh, vaccines or, or treatment remedies or therapeutics free of charge mm -hmm. to everyone. Mm -hmm. So that was just a, our, our, our daily PSA on 45, but but I digress greatly. Uh, <laughs> if you've just tuned in to bring it on, we have with us April Hennessy, who is running for a seat on the Monroe County Community School Corporation Board. Uh, just a little bit of quick background. She moved to Bloomington in 2007. She attended and graduated from IU. Uh, she currently works as a digital learning specialist for a global corporation that brings innovative learning strategies to organizations around the world. And we're gonna come back and ask her a little bit about that in a second. But she's also a parent of the children currently in the MCCSE school system. And uh, she's a former MCCSE English teacher at Bloomington High School North. Now, you know, in her side time, when she finds time, uh, she loves to read voraciously, listen to podcasts, and volunteers at the People's Market to provide access to whole foods and food security to families across Bloomington, digital learning specialist. Well, that sounds that sounds <laughs> intriguing. Uh, you, you're sitting on the answers here. Um, please share with us what you do on a daily basis and how might some of those modalities, you know, come over and help out our current children in the MCCSC or in private institutions around Bloomington. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I do work as a digital learning specialist and it's a mouthful for essentially, we create um, learning solutions at my company for um, global organizations. So whether it be training programs, it could be um, courses for soft skills like leadership skills. Um, it could be something like a diversity training. It could be an um, technical training for someone doing some kind of engineering project. It's a range of products and it's not all digital. Some of it's like an instructor led training sort of thing. Um, but it is kind of a strange thing that I didn't even know existed until I accidentally fell into this job. Um, I had a friend who I knew from the program I was in at, at IU who was working at this job. And she said, yeah, it's actually a really great place. Um, we provide all kinds of learning and training. You get to use your teacher skills. I work as a moderator for courses often, um, but also kind of as a content developer and instructional designer for a range of things. And I get to learn about all kinds of things that I never ever would have known about otherwise, you know, from the financial world to uh, submarine building to, you know, anything, you name it, we've done it. So uh, could some of those skill sets be brought over to help out a current state of affairs in MCCSE or, or other community school corporations? 
Absolutely. And early on, I did. I offered my assistance and my help, um, consulting skills or anything that I could do in order to help the district. Um, I just thought, you know, since this is something I do every day and it's something that we're going to probably continue to have to struggle with and work with as we move forward, at least for the immediate present, it was something that I would have loved to offer my help to sort of, you know, see what I could do to get this online learning in a shape that feels better for everyone or, you know, whatever it might be. But I also think part of it is just um, we really need to work with the city to sort of get access, right? I mean, internet should be a public utility at this point. That's just something that we're going to need to move forward. Um, so whether that's working with the city, whether that's working with the state, you know, I had teachers saying, I will go work at a park, you know, let's get some internet set up at a park. We'll go work at a park with students. We'll set up some tents or whatever it might be. We had teachers willing to do all kinds of really creative outside of the box things that didn't really pan out, but I think would be great if we could start thinking that way. I, and I just wanted to ask you, uh, you made a decision regarding your children to, if I'm not mistaken, to learn in, in person in Monroe County, or are they learning from home? They are. They're all online. Okay. Um, we made that decision as a family. We talked to the kids. We explained the reasons why we might do that. Um, I do know that at least two of my three kids would probably fare a little bit better in person, but um, collectively as a family, we decided, look, not only are things not entirely safe right now, but also when we take our bodies outside of the classroom because we have access and privilege, we allow space for other people to be there. Um, people who really need to be in the classroom for a variety of reasons. So yeah, we've been learning online since the start and some days it's okay and some days it's really rough and we just kind of make it through together. So you, you said you uh, discussed that as a family. We did. And, uh, and I remember whenever we had a family discussion in, in my household, when my father wanted our opinion, he gave it to us. So <laughs> I'm just I'm just wondering what your what were your children's thoughts about going back to school and even their friends? I'm sure you interact with their friends. What are their friends saying? Yeah, so we have people who are in a variety of situations. We know people who are doing hybrid right now. We know some people who were hybrid and then decided the school, the hybrid situation for them just wasn't working. Um, so they've moved from being in person to back online. And actually, MCCSC's recent count demonstrates that quite a few people have actually chosen to move from the in-person option to the online option. So I thought that was an interesting data point that I saw recently. Um, but, you know, I think some people with their learning styles or the accommodations that they need or a variety of things, being in front of a teacher is just necessary. They just need it. Um, and many, many other kids have said, no, I want to learn online forever. Like, I never want to have to go back into a school building. You know, they like the flexibility of being able to get up out of their desk when they need to get up. If they want to do it on a couch or the floor, they can move. Our buildings often restrict movement in so many ways because classrooms do have to be kind of contained in a certain way. You can't have kids just up all the time every day, not in the way that our classrooms are built. I think we do need to make space for that but um, they're just not set up like that right now. So kids have, are finding a lot of flexibility. And then I saw an online discussion the other day from some parents saying, we actually really like the hybrid option. Like if we had hybrid forever, we would like that. Um, they like the 
some days in school, some days not in school. And then of course there are parents who are like, no, we need our kids in school every single day for a variety of reasons, period. So it's across the board right now, really. Uh, you, you're a working mom with kids. Um, do you have childcare issues that, that you had to address? And if so, how, how did you uh, work that out? So I guess I'm fortunate enough to not have had to deal with that in really extensive ways. I mean, that is to say my work can be flexible. A lot of the time I work from home. I mean, I do have an office in town, but we're, we're shut down right now. So we're all working from home. Um, I'll admit there are days that have been extraordinarily hard trying to help the kids get through their learning so that I could get back to my work. And that means I'm sitting at my computer at midnight some nights. Um, it's so it's not been easy. I wouldn't say that, but I have been able to be home with them and not had to deal with a lot of childcare juggling. So I do know that I'm incredibly fortunate in that way. Uh, now, regarding your run for a uh, seat on the board, have you had encounters, meaning debates, uh, town halls, or any type of open public forums to discuss your platform as you make a run for a seat? Yeah, so I've gone to a couple of um, groups, either been invited to groups or, you know, asked to speak at groups, um, but also ICPE, the Indiana Coalition for Public Education, put on a pretty large forum a few weeks ago, and that was recorded by CATS, and so it is accessible to everyone. They can watch that, um, and it does have, I think all of the candidates were there that day, so you'll be able to hear from all of the candidates who are running at this moment. Um, and I plan to host a couple of Facebook live sessions so that people can come and just ask me questions. Those will be coming up on the 14th and the 18th. So people can be on the lookout for that. But yeah, I mean, I've tried to be pretty accessible and transparent in this process. Um, you say you have future Facebook live events coming up. Uh, how would one access that? Uh, so my page on Facebook, Hennessy for MCCSC, will be the place where the event is um, housed. So they'll be able to go there. But I, you know, we'll sort of share it and people can find the link. But it'll, yeah, it'll be on that page. And and how many are running against you? How many opponents do you? So I currently have two opponents. Um, it's an interesting year because most years, not very many people pay attention to school board races. And when I left the district in 2018, my seat wasn't open. And when I left, I knew that I would eventually run for school board. It was one of the things that I had um, sort of on my agenda in large part because as a teacher, I often felt like I did not have a voice in the way that I hope to have a voice, even though I was a member of the union. I um, tried to do all of the things that I could do in order to sort of have that voice. But I mean, we've seen even now that teachers really cannot speak for a lot of reasons. Some of those are state laws and others are board policies and things like that. But, um, you know, uh, now 2020, we have the incumbent who's been in the seat for, I think, almost 20 years. Um, and she's done a lot of good work, but I think it's just, um, it's time to have some teacher experience on the board, someone who has the experience of having been in a classroom recently. Um, that perspective I think is extraordinarily important at this moment. Um, and then there's another gentleman running um, for the same seat in this district too. Um, so yeah, there are two. And then there are two people, both the incumbent in district six and the gentleman running against Jacinda, um, Jacinda Townsend, Gaius. And then Keith Klein is running unopposed. And then there are two district, 
for two candidates for District 4, Marsha Lovejoy and Kathy Fuentes-Rower. Well, it sounds as if what has inspired you in part was that there's an incumbent who has been there for 20 years, and you felt that perhaps a, um, a teacher's perspective or a fresh voice was needed at this time, at this particular space and time to be heard is one of the motivations. Uh, are there others? And um, if was there something you wanted to change or is it that you just want your voice to be a part of the decision-making process? Yeah, I think as I've been saying, you know, we do have some deep issues in our district that I'd like to see, you know, change. I, I would like to see um, that sort of economic disparity be closed, that gap, the wealth gap be closed in our district. I'd like to see parents feel more empowered um, to, to feel like this district is their own. And I will say we often hear from the same parents and I will put myself in that category, right? I am a person with privilege in many ways. I have access, I can speak and I, I will show up to things. But I think there are so many parents in this district that we are not hearing from yet. And I wanna hear from them, right? I mean, I will go knock on doors if I have to. I will go out there and make myself available. I wanna hear from those families. And I think we need to make a really concerted effort to reach those people. Um, and then again, just sort of working on teacher retention. How do we retain teachers? It's going to be one of our biggest challenges moving forward. How do we retain teachers? How do we retain students in this district? I think from our last count in the spring, we've lost this year something like 800 students already. And we know we've lost a lot of staff and teachers as well. So how do we retain them? You know, that's going to be huge. And I know that the incumbent has a lot of experience in the way of the board, perhaps. But I also think um, I bring experience with me. I, I know this community as well. Um, I know our families. I know our students. I know our teachers. I know our administrators. I have relationships with them. Um, I hear from them almost every single day. Um, and I think it's time for someone on the board who has that perspective. Hey, you just heard April Hennessy, who is a candidate for the District 2 seat from the Monroe County Community School Corporation Board. Um, she's a Bloomingtonite uh, since 2007 and a tenant and graduated from my U. And uh, she spoke earlier about her experience as a digital learning specialist, uh, transforming the world uh, with innovative learning strategies to organizations all around the world. And as a parent of children currently in the MCCSC school system, uh, she's a former English teacher at MCCSC's uh, Bloomington High School North. And uh, she's just elaborating on her passion, her desire, her motivations for running for District 2's seat. Wait. April, uh, you mentioned retention, but retention and recruitment are actually joined at the hip. Would, would you agree? Absolutely. And so you mentioned retention uh, is, is somewhat of a problem, uh, mm -hmm. but recruiting teachers of color is a major problem it has been for quite some time in fact it's it's not uh exclusive to mccsc um what do number one what do you think part of the problem is in recruiting teachers of color and and number two do you have any specific ideas on how to tackle that issue yeah it is a big question um and i think one of the issues is you know, what does our community look like? What's the support here? Not only at the district level, but at the community. And lately we've been in the news for some not so not so great things, right? Um, we've seen a lot of um, 
sort of rallies and white supremacist actions happening. Um, some of that culminated with the farmer's market last year. Um, but I think also in terms of the district, what kind of supports do we provide, particularly to teachers of color? What kind of um, curricula are we willing to commit to? What kinds of support systems are we willing to build? And I think, you know, our district has to be attractive in that way. If we do not look like a district that will support a teacher of color in teaching accurate history, right, why would they want to come here? Right. We need to be attractive in that way. Um, and I know that the state did just recently say that we could begin to incorporate officially anti-racist curricula into our curriculum. That's something new. Uh, prior to that, it was not something that was on the table. Whether or not our district adopts that is another question, right? Um, so I would like to see that be something that we adopt. I would like to see us take a stand in many ways. And I think once we as a district say, here are the kinds of things and policies that we will not, you know, sort of abide. And here are the kinds of things that we are willing to do. Um, we may begin to look more attractive to teachers of color. So that's, that's one thing. The other is recruitment. Absolutely. I think, you know, some people have suggested that we begin having job fairs at historically black universities or um, a variety of other things, you know, I, I don't think that we even have to go that far. I think that we have teachers of color in Indiana that just are not coming here, right? Um, because Bloomington is, um, yes, progressive in many ways and liberal in many ways, but many times it is like a white liberal progressive establishment, right? And that is not hard to see once you start to dig in a little bit. So um, I think it's going to be about the district having to take a stand. You know, a few years back when I was at North, we had this sort of big issue with the Confederate flag. And technically, there was a kind of soft policy about the Confederate flag not being allowable or something like that, right? But we didn't have like a really strong policy that was enforced. And South did, for instance. Um, so that kind of like bubbled over in many ways in our school. And I think it's things like that, right? If as a district, we took a stand and said, look, as a district, we're going to say, the Confederate flag is banned. You cannot brandish that flag anywhere on school property. The district has made a statement. But oftentimes those kinds of things get left up to the building. Well, we'll let the building decide. We'll let this building decide. So in many ways, the district, the corporation, needs to make a really strong statement about some of these things so that people understand where we stand, right? Where do we stand on these issues? Will we allow teachers of color to be supported or will we allow them to sort of be thrown under the bus in these various ways that happen occasionally? You know, it reminds me of the incident where a teacher, uh, I think in their thinking was well-intentioned and that's debatable, but wanted to have young black males stay mm -hmm. over so that uh, they could receive special tutelage to help inspire them to be better citizens. Or, I mean, the whole thing was convoluted. I think it was MLK Day or something, a day on a day, day not off, but, and I may be wrong, but help me out if you recall that incident, but it, it was a big news story where this, this teacher was overreaching, overstepping, and it really just blew up in their face. It was actually yeah. two of those. And the, the one other teacher made an issue of slavery. And, you, you know, to your point, uh, April, uh, we need to progress and move this Monroe County School Corporation forward a bit more. 
uh, at least make a stand, as she said, make a stand on, on relevant topics, especially those that impact, um, say, minority communities, children of color, and even international students. Uh, yes, you know, I absolutely. dare think, what, what do some of our Muslim students or Asian students think as they attend some of these schools? So being progressive, I think, uh, is the right thing to do at this point in time. Time, as I just said, is sort of escaping from us. And I'd like to allow you a final word to speak towards your candidacy and any other issue that we that you feel we've not addressed. Uh, and we're just so glad, number one, that you were able to join us today. But if you'd like to uh, close this segment out with perhaps a few final remarks. Sure. Yeah, I, I think we've covered a lot here and I appreciate the opportunity to be here with you all today. Um, ultimately, I think what we need here in this district is just some new perspective. And, you know, as one of that, those 5.2% of teachers of color as an Asian woman, um, I do have a unique perspective having worked in the district. You know, I will not um, in any way say that my, my experience is the same as my Muslim friends or my black friends working in the district, not at all, but still as an Asian woman who heard many slurs across the day, racial slurs, um, either targeted at me or under the breath or just in passing, you know, I was often very concerned about what that experience looked like for my kids of color. And the thing is, I don't think we've addressed that yet fully enough as a district. We talk a lot about bullying, but we don't really, really dig into these sort of racial inequities, um, economic disparities, not in ways that are, are really, really firmly embedded in the culture of our schools. And so I think, you know, it's just time. It's time for our district to really make some bold changes. And it's uncomfortable. I mean, it is going to be uncomfortable. Not These kinds of changes aren't easy. They affect everyone. They, they shake things up. It gets uncomfortable. It creates discomfort for people who are used to being comfortable. But I think as a community, if we are going to continue to talk about how we are progressive, how we are you know, invested in equity, then we have to be willing to A, put our votes where our mouths are, right? And B, do the hard work of being in it together. And that means shaking things up. And it means, you know, making some really big and bold changes. And it's going to have to come from the top down and from the bottom up. And it's going to have to be a whole community effort. And I am just really invested in helping that um, sort of come to fruition. On that note, we want to thank April Hennessy, a candidate for the District 2 seat on the Monroe County Community School, School Corporation Board. Uh, thank you, April, for joining us to help discuss your interest in joining the Monroe County School Corporation, uh, Monroe County Community School Corporation Board. Um, and we want to invite you back again at some time. We have some very relevant points to bring out. And I hope uh, as time goes on, you'll let us know more about uh, when you're Facebook Live forums will take place since things are pretty much handled virtually now. And uh, we look forward to seeing how all this turns out after November 3rd. Uh, and on that note, let's uh, segue into a discussion in April. You're more than welcome to, to stay and join us. Um, we want to comment on the vice presidential debate that occurred last Wednesday uh, between uh, the incumbent vice president, Mike Pence, and then Senator Kamala Harris. Uh, both candidates had strong moments, a few stumbles over the course of a 90-minute affair. 
But as far as lasting memories go, honestly, uh, they were few and far between. It was more just uh, sort of restating the positions of, of their contemporaries who are running for the highest office in the land. And if this was a match that showcased the features of the Democratic and Republican parties, the real fireworks will have to wait for the coming years. And that's an assessment of one uh, new service. Uh, there was a lot of fact-checking going on, and it seemed, William, from my vantage point, that the vice president, the current sitting vice president, deflected a lot in his smooth, charming way. And even when he was governor of the state of Indiana, he did the same thing. So we, we're used to that. But uh, uh, I think the real star of that 90-minute interlude um, was Jeff a- Goldblum. No, what? No, was a fly. <laughs> yeah, I just got there. <laughs> was the fly? The fly made its appearance, and uh, <laughs> when, when that occurred, and I have to admit, uh, Pence has uh, uh, snow white hair, and of course, you know, white hair, gray hair denotes wisdom. Well, used to anyway. Uh, this fly <laughs> landed, and the contrast of this black fly on this white. Uh, hair piece. Well, that, no, that's his real hair on his hair. Uh, it jolted me for a second. I'm thinking, well, certainly he feels something going across the hair follicles, right? You know, certainly Mrs. Pence is going to scream out, Mike, Mike, there's a fly. <laughs> but none of that happened. And that may have been the highlight because Kamala stood her ground, Mike. She stood her ground. And, and she pointed out her very first opening remark was uh, she stated that this is a failure as a presidency. And the coronavirus, while he tried to take it off the front, uh, off of this, the top attention, uh, it, it remained the top attention piece, the coronavirus. How is our president mishandling this? So that's my view. And, and there were some you know, jabs here and there. But overall, I don't think Pence did anything to move the needle in their direction. I think Kamala did a, a lot to sustain the momentum that's going in the Biden direction. And um, there, there were new, there were no new bombs. I think Pence tried to hint that there's something behind again these emails from Hillary Clinton. News flash: Hillary Clinton is not running for president in 2020. So that that's my perspective, and I, I defer you. Away. So what what were some of the takeaways? Um, I think probably at the very top of the list. And April, I'd like you to come in after after me if you don't mind. At the very top of the list is this was a completely different tone from the presidential debate. Absolutely. Uh, we, had, we had two adults at the podium. Yes. And, and the moderator did maintain control, although uh, Mike Pence had a case of the run-ons. She and, could, and I'll refer, you know. She could have done just a little bit better, I think. But go ahead, April. I agree. I mean, she could have done just a little bit better. Um, I do think one of the key takeaways was hearing Kamala Harris say, I'm speaking. I'm still speaking. Right. You know, for women across the world, that was a yes, Yes. you are speaking, you know. So for sure, that was one of the takeaway moments. I also just think and, you know, this is maybe a little flip, but within minutes, that Biden campaign had the fly swatter right? They have a fly swatter for sale now. The thing is, like, I think we have just missed that sense of humor. I think the whole nation, the reason why the fly thing is so huge is that the whole nation is just thirsty for some humor and a moment of levity, right? Thank you, fly. Thank you for that moment. <laughs> and um, I think um, as soon as it was over, the the uh, site, the news site that I watched that brought some analysis after the, after the fact, 
the roaring and laughter over that. Um, and it, it sort of, it was like an, uh, a punctuation mark. You know, it was, it was, look, from the previous week where the Biden couldn't get, a, couldn't get a word in to this sort of swarmy, just sugary-coated responses with lies left and right. I mean, the lie meter was busy. Um, and Kamala, I felt, you know, and, and, you know, let's face it, I, yes, I am a Democrat. I'm supporting in this particular race, uh, the Democratic uh, contenders, and they have a case to make with American people. I think the Republicans don't, they can't defend their record. Um, and I think it's pretty obvious. So what are they doing? They're deflecting, plain and simple. You know, it's, it's very interesting the way that they defend their record. Whatever Donald Trump and Mike Pence wants to be true, whether it's true or not, whatever they want to be true, they just go and declare it. They just go and say it, it is as if they can wave their, their, their godly hand and make it happen. Last night, uh, it really got under my skin when Mike Pence denied systemic racism. And he, he denied some of the things that are in place uh, especially in, in the justice system, working against uh, uh, people of color. He just made that declaration as, as they do all their other lies. Well, I think Kamala, all she had to say when Mike said, our hearts go out to you know, both these families that have suffered, um, all she had to do was ask, well, did you contact them and tell them that? No, to this date, I don't think either one, either, either Trump or Pence have contacted these families. And I agree. Um, he tried to deflect from there and also never really answered some of the questions from the moderator. Uh, but I, again, I, I, I don't think he did his party any favors from his performance uh, last Wednesday. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, not only are we fully aware that systemic racism exists, but I think Kamala Harris and the response to her in, is indicating that at this moment even, you know, I mean, people keep saying like she couldn't win, right? So she sat there and she smiled, but what people are saying is she looks smug and she was snarky and she did this and she was pulling faces and, you know, but on the other hand, had she, had she sat there stone-faced, had she spoken louder, had she, she would have been branded again as an angry black woman, right? Like she cannot win. And that right there is systemic, is systemic racism at play that no matter what she does, she's not going to win that with some audiences. So, you know, I just, it, we just can't deny that. I think uh, Pence gave her, and he had a share of glares at her. And some were throwbacks to a time when, you know, you dare counter what I am saying mm -hmm. as, as a white individual sitting here. And if she came back and someone said she had the mamala gaze that looked at him and said, I'm going to reach, <laughs> yeah. over, I'm gonna reach over this plexiglass and knock that fly <laughs> off your head. So, yeah, I mean, some things are rooted in America. And it takes someone who's lived in our, our country for a while to understand and grasp the subtleties, the undertones even the subtle dog whistles that we've heard through this campaign season. And again, I go back to what President, former President Obama said, we're about to enter into the silly season of politics and campaigning. And sure enough, we have. Um, hold on to your hats. We have about, what, 23 days or so left? It's going to get crazy. It's going to get crazy. Hey, in, our last, in our last couple of minutes, uh, I want to read something. And, and you two see if you can guess which uh, news organization it came from. 
Undecided voters found Harris abrasive, condescending. Fox. <laughs> Fox. Done. Uh, Fox. <laughs> I mean, well, no, go ahead. Just for the sake of hearing what they had to say. That, that was it. That was and it. That was it. You know, yeah. That but was the headline. But, but again, that stereotype of the angry black woman. Again, it's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you're darned if you do and darned if you don't. Right. Right. But I'm so glad Absolutely. she was authentic. She stood her ground. And, um, you know, I, I knew she felt the hopes and aspirations of multiple millions of people who are watching. And I think, I hope they infused her with the boldness to declare who she was first to call out the administration. And we don't have time, unfortunately, this show to talk about uh, the great return from Walter Reed, uh, the ascension of the stairs, uh, the fact that she should have had air, a canister of air waiting. Um, before he got up there, when he dramatically ripped his mask off and gritted his teeth, and he was sucking in so much air. But anyway, we don't have time, but we will one day. We will. And on that note, um, we'll go ahead and transition to Hog William. <laughs> okay. Well, Bring It On has an open submission policy. So if you have any ideas for this program, we would like to hear them. Please send your emails directly to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share any and everything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address, once again, bringiton at wfhb.org. And again, our thanks to April Hennessy, our candidate for District 2's North County Community School Corporation seat for joining us on you know, board seat. Thank you, April, once again. Uh, if you have an event or happening the African-American community should know about, please send the info directly to the Bring It On staff. Or if you want additional info about a calendar item that you've heard tonight, contact us at bringiton at wfhp.org. Our show's executive producer is Clarence Boone with help from WFHB News Department Director Cade Young. Promotional graphics were created by yours truly and original theme music created by Jamil Effiam with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm William Hosea. And I'm Clarence Boone. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB. And if you have not voted... Early voting has started. Exercise your right to vote. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.